Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Hi, everybody. Hi, Hi, Dr. Dr. Nick. Nick. Hello, everybody. It's Dr. Nick here again. And welcome to Radiotherapy Live online and on podcast. I'm joined in the studio today by nearly the whole crew. Misdiagnosis is either on the way home after night shift or fast asleep after propping up the emergency at Western Health. But I have sitting next to me um, um, psychotherapist, researcher and expert in all matters of the mind, Prudence Dear. Hi, Good Prudence. morning. I'm back and I've got a voice too. How wonderful. Week. Yes, you croaked your way through I the did. last that show. That was amazing. But here I am, fit and healthy. Well, lovely. And to jabbed. <laughs> and jabbed. And jabbed. We'll come on to jab in a second. Next to you, Rainbow Doc. Hi, Rainbow. Welcome back to the studio. Hello. Lovely to be here too with Prudence with yeah, Panel of course Beater. I've almost the... forgotten the name. It's <laughs> Panel Beater and with you, Dr. Nick. Well, lo- lovely to have you and Panel Beater behind the scenes, keeping everything going as always. Thank you, Panel Beater. Um, so uh, later in the show, Prudence there will be talking to the CEO of Switchboard, Joe Ball. Uh, Switchboard is an LGBTIQA plus support group, and with Ida Hobbit Day this week and Pride March on today, clearly the time is right for a bit of queer support. We're coming to that later in the show. On a similar theme, Rainbow will be looking at trigger warnings. What are they? When did they become a thing? And do they do any good? First up, we'll be talking to the program manager of perinatal support group, the Gidget Foundation, Bethany Haxall. So we've got a pack show coming up. But before we get to all that, we're going to give you some news. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Um, I'm going to go straight in first and remind everybody, please, please, please get your COVID jab. Hands up in the studio who's had a jab. Yay! Yay, 50% of us have started. The other 50% are too young to Friday. Got Friday. <laughs> Friday, fantastic. Um, but please, 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 people, get out there and do it. The risks are tiny, infinitesimal. You're much more at risk by going for your Sunday walk or going to the jab than you are from having it, and the benefit's massive. I feel so good having had the first one. I felt my immune system giving itself up. How was yours, Prudence? Oh, yeah, no, it was pretty good, actually. I was very, I was honestly, I was very tired for the first day or two after the jab. Yeah. After that, it was like, yeah, I feel great. Yeah, quite a lot of people will get a bit of a sore arm, feel a bit under the weather. That's okay. That's your immune system doing its job. That's what we wanted yeah. to do. But we need people to get those jabs. So get on out there. Yeah. Um, importantly, in terms of newsy stuff, um, Rainbow, what have you got for us? Well, today is the first day of Schizophrenia Awareness Week. So... Um, This started in 1986 to raise awareness about schizophrenia and also to encourage people that have schizophrenia to reach out for support and connection with other people. Um, uh, This this year the theme is Discover Mental Health. 
Yeah, it's very I, simple, but um, yeah, and I think discover more is what they want people to do to discover more about schizophrenia, what it means. Uh, I, I do a lot of work in this area here, and um, I've got a couple of people with really complex chronic schizophrenia who work full time, and no one have any idea that these people have a mental illness. It's incredible what can be done these days. Uh, where can people find out more if they're interested? One eight hundred nine. Eight five nine double four one will take you to the Mental Illness Fellowship of Australia who have lots of information and contacts, events that are happening during this week. And www.sane.org, without the AU, it's just .org, so www.sane.org is another avenue. Um, another little shout-out I want to give, uh, Kaz Cook, the incredible Kaz Cook, who people would be familiar with from books like Up the Duff and Girl Stuff. Um, she's, um, she's bending to public pressure. <laughs> she's writing a book about the menopause. Um, but being cash, she doesn't want to write just about herself. She wants to write about other people. So she's giving a shout-out for women who are of a certain age who maybe have a menopausal experience to contact her so that they can tell their stories. Um, and Kaz Cook, if you just uh, do a www.kazcook, and that's Cook with, well, Kaz with a Z and Cook with an E, you'll find that she wants your story, so contact her. I want to ask my esteemed panellists, if Kaz had some books called Up the Duff and Girl Stuff, what should her book about menopause be called? Give her a title option. What do you reckon, Rainbow? Menno. Oh, I like it. Oh, Menno and a dash. Dot, dot, dot. Oh, I love it. <laughs> That's very good. What do you reckon, Prudence? Oh, I think it's got to be something to do with, like, no sweat, question mark. Ah! <laughs> I love it. I was going to call it hot under the collar. <laughs> There you go, Kaz, we've, we've, we've pretty much got the book done for you. So. <laughs> and in a moment, we're going to be talking um, to Bethany Haxall from the Gidget Foundation. Um, this is a foundation um, dedicated to all things perinatal and support of women and men uh, around the birth experience. She'll be coming up in just a minute after these notices. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R, exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. And on the line now, we've got Bethany Hexel. Good morning, Bethany. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, you're from the Gidget Foundation. Do you want to start off by telling us what is the Gidget Foundation? Yeah, for sure, and I thank you for having me. Um, the Gidget Foundation is a not-for-profit organisation, and we really uh, exist to support the emotional well-being of expectant and new parents. And we provide a number of programs to support the emotional well-being of expectant and new parents, and it's really for those particularly who are suffering with um, perinatal mental health issues. Um, we run a number of programs nationally um, via telehealth, but also face-to-face through our Gidget House services. Um, and we provide free psychological counselling for expectant and new parents that are in distress. Which, which sounds an incredibly important service. Take me back to where this all mm. began. How long has Gidget been running? Yeah, so this is actually the, the 20th year of the organisation. Oh. Um, yeah, which is a really big milestone for us. Um, and the Gidget Foundation was really, unfortunately, started um, out of real tragedy. A young woman um, by the name of Louise, her nickname was Gidget, 
Um, and she tragically took her own life um, while she was experiencing unrecognised postnatal depression. And in her honour, her family developed the organisation back 20 years ago. And they're really determined to make a difference and make sure that um, no other families had to go through what they had to go through. So the and roots of the organisation are really grounded in that. Yeah, sorry, it began in New South Wales, is that right? Yeah, yeah. So Gidget actually grew up in the northern beaches of Sydney. Um, so a lot of our services um, began in, in Sydney, but we've now expanded, um, excitingly, obviously, into Victoria uh, most recently. And we also have a Gidget house in Toowoomba and also regional New South Wales now. So we've got 15 Gidget houses, which are our free psychological support services nationally. So it's expanded a lot in those 20 years. And so how long have you been providing services here in Victoria? So our Jean Hales um, for Women's Health Gidget House um, actually launched a couple of weeks ago officially um, and that's our face-to-face psychological counselling services. But in saying that, we we started um, last year during COVID officially offering telehealth services. So we've already provided over 500 telehealth appointments to Victorians. Um, but excitingly, over in the last few weeks, we've officially launched our face-to-face service now that the pandemic is easing, and we're offering that face-to-face support as well as telehealth still. So who are the sorts of people who should come to you? Is this people who are thinking about getting pregnant or only once they are pregnant? What's, what's the story? Yeah, so the service is really open to um, all women and their partners um, who are either pregnant or have a baby up to the age of 12 months. So a lot of people don't realise that uh, women in particular can experience um, perinatal depression and anxiety whilst pregnant. Um, so we are a service that obviously support um, expectant parents, but also parents who have had a child and are, are suffering from um, perinatal depression and anxiety. Um, but also we support people through grief and loss, um, whether it's uh, miscarriage or even birth trauma and some of the um, post-traumatic stress disorders that it can occur after that as well. Hi, it's it's Rainbow Doc here. Now, knowing that there is a link between uh, antenatal depression and postnatal depression, I'm wondering how hard it is to to kind of to reach uh, women that are pregnant and yeah. you know meant to be happy about this and excited mm. about this to to actually get you know once someone has had a baby they've probably been to hospital and are sort of in the system but before that how how easy it is to reach those women yeah so it's a very good point because a lot of people don't realize that a lot of these symptoms can occur whilst pregnant there's a lot of hormonal changes going on and a lot of contributing and, and major life changes happening obviously so we, um, we do a lot of awareness and kind of advocacy work with GPs as well to raise awareness of our service um, because obviously there's a lot of uh, women going through a shared care approach, but we have a lot of links too with um, New South Wales Health through the local health districts and hospital systems as well as through the private hospital systems as well. So we really um, work pretty hard to build some of those strong foundations with our key referrers to make sure that the awareness is out there and those that are seeking you know, support through those appointments that happen in that antenatal phase um, are made aware of services like the Gidget Foundation. So to access our service, um, expectant and new parents do need a, a GP referral and a mental health care plan, and that's why we do a lot of work to communicate with those key referral pathways to make sure they're educated and they know our service exists and they can refer their clients on to us. And you mentioned this is not just about the pregnant woman herself or the woman who's had the baby. Uh, mm. Tell me about partners. How often do you see partners and uh, yeah. how, many, how many of those partners are same-sex, how many of them men? What's, what's the story there? 
Yeah, so we um, once again a lot of a lot of birth partners and, and, and dads don't know that they can experience postnatal depression and anxiety. So there's a real job to be done there in awareness, and we're we're trying to really drive that change in mindset. One in ten um, partners actually will experience PNDA, and one in five mothers. So it's still a really so significant number. Just explain experience PMD. Po- yeah, postnatal depression and anxiety. Thank you. Yeah, so it's one in five mothers and, and one in ten um, partners or, or dads um, can experience postnatal depression and anxiety. So the stats are still quite high. And unfortunately, there's not a lot of awareness around that. Um, I think the focus obviously is a lot on, on the mother and um, dads do often struggle as well. So we, we do a lot of work to try and encourage dads to seek help. Um, and we do provide services to dads. We actually have um, a Facebook group too called Gidget Virtual Village for dads. It's purely for, for partners and, and dads. Wow. Um, and we only still, you know, we look at some of our stats and our um, our psychological counselling services. Or dads represent and, and birthing partners represent about 5% um, of those clients. So it's still a small number. And I think there's a big job to do out there with mental health anyway um, when it comes to, to partners. Um, so we're doing a lot of work at the moment working with, um, you know, groups and organisations to try and raise that profile and make sure that dads and birthing partners do know that there is support out there and, and they should come forward as well as equally as much as, as the mothers. There's a pod me that's delighted to hear it's as much as 5%. I thought it might be less. Uh, Rainbow. Yeah. <laughs> Rainbow. Yeah. yeah, and it's lovely to hear you talking about partners as well as dads and birthing partners and I'm assuming that female partners are also welcome at your service. Yes, of course, of course. Yeah, we do. We actually do provide some, some group therapy as well um, as part of some funding through New South Wales Hope, Health and we, we hope to expand that into other states over the coming years and we do see a lot of same-sex couples as well, um, so two mums and two dads and, and we're very much an inclusive service so we love to support anyone and everyone, we're trying to kind of spread the word but it's, it's not just all about those who those birthing parents, it's, it's about the partners and support people and even the immediate family too that can reach out for support. Right, and everyone's queuing up with questions. Prudence is barging <laughs> in first. Definitely, yes, yeah, prudence here. <clears throat> um, uh, it's good to hear, um, you know, about your sort of inclusivity and so on. I'm just wondering, um, especially with the type of service and how you are promoting it through GPs and so on and mm-hmm. referrals. Um, have you been able to make any sort of special steps, especially to engage with like rural communities? It's probably one thing to get to people yeah. in the cities. What's it like trying to get out into the country? Yeah. Yeah, so obviously it's, it's even more of a challenge for for new and expected parents in those regional and rural communities where their services aren't as, um, you know, um, available and accessible to them as well. So we, we do have a national telehealth service called Start Talking um, and that is available nationally, as I said, and we've got um, psychologists who can provide telehealth services. We do work really closely with the um, primary health networks all around the country as well as the local health district and the um, perinatal and infant mental health services um, to make sure that we've got enough awareness within those pathways for for them to obviously refer on to us. Um, We also, most of our um, Gidget houses, which are our face-to-face psychological counselling services in regional New South Wales, are in partnership with Tristillian. Um, and we also have a site with Caratani in Shell Harbour as well. So those those local links and local ties for us are really important to drive that local awareness. And these are the services that local parents are accessing regularly and also through the family and community health centres as well. So um, we make sure that we're connected with all of those nationally to make sure that awareness is there and that they can refer on to our service. And if there isn't that face-to-face available through a Gidget House, then the Start Talking Telehealth Program can provide support. 
It's 20 past 10 here on 3RRR. You're listening to Radiotherapy, and um, we're in conversation with Bethany Haxall, who's the program manager of the Gidget Foundation. And, Bethany, you've mentioned a couple of times telehealth, which we've talked about a lot on this show, because we get very excited about telehealth. But I think you've, you've had the experience through Gidget of finding that it works well. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, for sure. We we started our telehealth program back in 2018, so pre-COVID. Um, oh, you were, the, you were leaders was, of yeah, the Yeah, a bit ahead of the game. <laughs> well, we saw a bit of an opportunity, and I think once everything kind of hit last year and, and obviously the pandemic changed everything and, and, you know, parents particularly were isolated, we were able to change over all of our face-to-face um, psychological sessions overnight to our telehealth service, which is amazing. Um, so that we can continue supporting, you know, the, the expecting the new parents that are experiencing these issues. Um, we think telehealth is particularly important, obviously, for expecting the new parents. There's so many issues such as recovering from cesareans. You know, people have experienced birth trauma. They don't have the ability to drive often for six to eight weeks. Um, there's the added stress of having an unsettled baby or, or a bub that you're trying to get into a routine. And often leaving the house is particularly difficult and, and further induces that anxiety that they're already experiencing. So we think that the telehealth service is um, a huge, huge important to our, to our, the group that we support. We believe, though, that a blended approach to a lot of the consultations is the most optimal because we find and feedback from clients and our counsellors as well, is that they can build that rapport if they meet face-to-face and a real comprehensive assessment can be done by that clinician as well. So even if it's just, you know, one consultation face-to-face and the rest delivered telehealth, that's what we kind of advocate for. But in saying that, though, um, the choice is up to the client. So if if someone wants to call and book into, you know, our our new Clayton service, um, our Kitchen House in Clayton in Victoria, they'd have the option. Um, They could, you know, have their service delivered by telehealth or face-to-face or a blended approach as well. Lovely. Well done. Yeah, we're really happy to see that the government's extended um, the telehealth funding to the end of the year, um, which is fantastic. Um, We're we're massive advocates, obviously, and we'll be continuing to lobby for that as long as possible. That's great. Yes, we really need that, don't we? Um, Bethany, I was just thinking as well, in terms of so new new parents, when does a parent stop being new? At what point can they engage with your service? You know, is there a kind yeah. of cut-off of the age of the child or or what? Because, yeah. I mean, sometimes people might be going, seemingly going fine for months or whatever mm. and then hit a crisis yep. a bit later on. What happens there? And do you have yeah. ways of referring to other, what you might consider more appropriate services? Yep, yep. So we um, accept referrals for parents who have children up to the age of 12 months. Um, we'd love to provide services beyond that, but it's, it simply comes down to service capacity. You know, we already have a wait list um, and COVID has unfortunately increased that wait list substantially. So we do um, unfortunately say after that 12 months, we generally refer back to the GP um, who hopefully will get in touch with more of the local psychology services. There's also the Panda helpline as well, which mm-hmm. is Perinatal Anxiety and Depression Australia, and that's a hotline. Um, and they're a really good kind of triage system where people can call and be referred on to their kind of local and most appropriate support provider. Um, but as I said, because we've got it capped at 12 months of age, we unfortunately just don't have the clinicians, we don't have the workforce that are specialised in perinatal depression and anxiety to be able to sustain um, any more clients, uh, you know, beyond that period. I'm, 
if I may, I'm going to give you my tip that my wife gave me when we had our first child and she was pretty anxious and I spent a lot of time um, suggesting what we should do and trying to sort things out and doing the typical boy thing of trying to fix it and clearly things weren't working. She was getting more and more frustrated with me and me with her and eventually I said, you know, what do you want me to do? And she said, stop trying to fix it. I thought, oh, there's a new concept, tick. And I'm, then with I said, her. So, I'm with her. And then I said, so, yeah, me too. Yeah, well, exactly. And then I said, what would help she said just shut up give me a cuddle make me a cup of tea and listen yeah. and I thought shut up cuddle tea listen I, I can probably do that <laughs> being the typical man I'm talking over three decades ago here yeah. I'm a changed person but, it, but I had no idea that that's what she needed mm. and one of the things I have talked endlessly with partners about is the shut up cuddle tea listen concept mm. um, which is really not that hard because we blokes are quite good with manuals and when something comes from Ikea in a flat pack we can read the thing and do what we're told when my wife gave me the manual I knew what to do but <laughs> it's, it's not a bad tip for parents as well particularly with parents who are struggling with adolescence well the adolescent might not want the cuddle but they probably might appreciate the cup of tea well it's one of the reasons mm. I mention it on air because I think particularly for men listening who struggle sometimes with knowing what to do um, I think we men are not intuitively aware that sometimes just shutting up listening giving a cuddle and making a cup of tea is one of the most therapeutic things we can do um, which to some extent is what we do in our sort of psychotherapeutic relationships but I'm um, sorry Rainbow you were going to I was going, can you shut up just go and make us a cup of tea <laughs> you wanted to ask something Rainbow uh, no I was just going to comment Bethany as you're saying you know there's a shortage of of uh, mm. practitioners that are skilled people that have skills in this area I think it's a, yeah. a a thing that we're seeing generally there's a lot of money being put into mental health but there just aren't mm. there just aren't the practitioners there aren't the people with the skills yet there's a yeah. lag time you're completely right and and unfortunately there's been a lot of money invested um, in screening and diagnosis um, but what we really need is, is investment in services because the more people that are going to be screened, the more diagnosis. And unfortunately, um, there's wait times. Um, and I think if you're diagnosed with something like postnatal depression and anxiety, the best thing to do is, is seek help. And early intervention is key because it's, it really is a recoverable illness. Um, but we need to get onto it quickly and make sure that that impact isn't drawn out. So, so Bethany, you're right. We, we, sorry, you go. Yes, sorry to interrupt. But um, time is drawing to a close. It's, it's such mm. a crucial service. This Just tell, tell our listeners if, if they're hearing this, they think this is something that could be useful for myself or someone that I know. How do they get in touch with the Gidget Foundation? Yep. So, um, first of all, before um, reaching out, it's best to go and see your GP because to access a free service like ours, you need a referral and a mental health care plan and to make sure that service is free of charge for no out-of-pocket expenses. But to learn more about us and our services, um, we recommend people go to gidgetfoundation.org.au. So it's G-I-D-G-E-T, foundation.org.au. Or the number is 1300 851 and from there, our um, support services will be able to um, organise some counselling sessions. But um, the most important thing is to go to your GP and get that referral and mental health care plan. So that number was one three hundred eight five one seven five eight. That's correct. Lovely. Thank you very much. And Bethany, thank you very much for your time and for um, putting on this. In, well, I know you don't do it personally, but for managing <laughs> this incredibly important service. Thank you very much for talking to us. 
No, thank you so much for your support. I really appreciate your time. That was Bethany Haxel from the Gidget Foundation and um, what an incredible service and I'm ashamed to say I knew little about it beforehand. So Gidget, prepare yourselves for a flood of referrals from a certain doctor in in Melbourne. Um, We'll be coming back um, afterwards to talk with Prudence Deer um, about, uh, sorry, with Rainbow Doc about trigger warnings. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website, rrr.org.au. Rainbow Doc, uh, you're going to talk to us a bit about trigger warnings. Go ahead. Yeah, well, I might just start by, you know, kind of defining, explaining what a trigger warning is for anyone that isn't isn't aware what we're talking about here. So it's a warning that is given that there's something coming up that might disturb you or distress you, which gives you the option to uh, switch off, not listen, walk out of the room, whatever, that that you know what is coming up. And this, um, this uh, trend, or I suppose, of issuing warnings has um, quite a long history from starting back in the 1950s where there used to be warnings on comic books of violence for parents oh, yes. yeah. and their children. So that was kind of one of the first times that we saw it. And then on CDs during the 80s when language became um, a little more uh, loose perhaps um, in songs, there would be warnings on CDs, again, really for, for, for parents, I guess. Yeah, I never too. saw them on vinyl record covers. I don't think there were. No, no I, I don't. Think it I've, was... got, I've got a few vinyl records with some very specific language with no warnings whatsoever. So interesting, only when it went to the digital. Yeah, came, yeah. And then um, in the 90s, it started on movies and, um, you know, with ratings on movies so that you knew what you were going to see and could make choices um, accordingly. Now we see trigger warnings, and it started more recently um, online with um, on feminist blog blogs, uh, warning people about um, uh, sexual assault content, um, and now we see trigger warnings kind of everywhere. Certainly on social media, it's used by a lot of you know a lot of people just in posting. Uh, on Facebook, Instagram, wherever, so people know and and have that choice. And they're used in academia, I think, aren't they, as well, for lectures and that sort of thing? In academia, which is something I'd actually like to ask Panel Beater about in a, in a moment as as the person here that is... is uh is working in that it's area. a proper academic. <laughs> it's, it's a proper academic, yeah. Um, but the interesting thing about this, I mean, I've I've made myself made a complaint to the ABC when I saw something on television. It was uh, it was on a news program, but it was it was an early news bulletin, and there was someone being um, someone was killed in this vision, and I didn't catch the trigger warning right, and I saw this and just thought. I was really shocked and I'm not a big consumer of television so I often think I'm not I'm not desensitized I'm not actually used to seeing graphic images on television I made a complaint it was taken very very seriously and I was told there actually was a trigger warning which made me think maybe I was triggered and therefore I'd forgotten that it's, there was a trigger war- you know that I it had 
it had gone past me that I didn't realise that there had been a warning. It was taken very, very seriously and I was told that we, uh, um, the warning was there, that they took warnings very seriously. My question was also, why did you have to show this, right, which is a whole other other thing. It's actually a very interesting point. My wife would never lock, allow her growing kids to watch the news because, of course, the news could be on at six o'clock in the evening when young kids might be watching the television and all sorts of horrific stuff would come up that would never be allowed in play school or whatever, which what might have been on earlier in the day. Yeah. Um, but let's, let's talk, go back to the trigger warning. So they yeah. sound like a great idea. They sound like uh, intuitively think, well, this gives people the chance to prepare yeah. for it and watch it knowing what's coming up or avoid it if they want to. Yeah. Um, but my understanding is that the world ain't quite that simple sometimes. Well, the, 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 all the evidence, all the research shows that they don't work. Yes. Right? They so don't do you want to tell work. us a bit more about that? So one of the reasons they don't work is that what it, what it in, in terms of post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, one of the symptoms, if you want, of PD, PTSD is avoidance of, of the um, whatever it is that's, that's led to the trauma, of the traumatic event, if you want. And so if people are seeing the trigger warning and they are switching off, avoiding they are actually exacerbating or they're, if you want, feeding into the PTSD. So that's one of the reasons why it doesn't work. The other is that people might see it, but it doesn't mean they turn away, um, mm. which brings me to that, that idea of, um, you know, why do we have to show this? Why do we have to show this stuff? We are so desensitised. Um, even for people, you know, there's a difference between people who have... PTSD and people that don't and the impact of material on those people um, because if you don't have PTSD and you see these shocking images you know what is happening then is kind of a it's it's a desensitization and actually are we causing trauma there we you know we're, we're starting the the we're starting the PTSD, if, if you want. We're activating it. And, and even before we go there, my understanding from the research is that people who read a trigger warning that is important to them and then go on to watch the material, there's some evidence that the trigger warning itself actually starts the sensitisation process, which makes the experience of watching the material more extreme. And they've actually done research on this. Yeah, yeah. There's an there's an association. I mean, people can be triggered by, for instance, seeing a colour. You know, if I walked into this studio and it was all blue, and there was blue associated with whatever the traumatic event had been, that could trigger without me knowing that. So triggers kind of can sit there without being obvious. Um, trigger your warnings now are being used in the university setting and I gather that a lot of students are demanding them what's what's actually happening there Panabita? it's pernicious <laughs> it's um it's it's a big it's a big topic and I reckon it's great that you're talking about it um there's some a lot of divided opinion about it I think would be um the first headline statement and I probably fall into the camp um following the research that it doesn't work that it's um, counter-therapeutic, especially if people are um, using their trauma, um, unwillingly, no doubt, but um, using their trauma as part of their identity and that counter-therapeutic reinforcement of the trauma. Um, but students are asking for it. Um, I tend to organise my practice around um, uh, the idea that if, if a, 
if there's potential that the students that I'm talking to are going to be surprised that there will be this content, then I'll say something. Um, if it's self-evident that this content is going to be part of the course, it's in the syllabus, might even be in the course name, then I'm, I'm less inclined to do so. Um, so um, case in point would be in a um, policy course, I'm, <clears throat> a master's policy course I'm teaching at the moment, we deal with um, domestic violence quite a bit. And um, it's in the syllabus. Uh, the reading material about domestic violence is in the syllabus. Uh, students know it's coming up. It's part of the case study material. Um, to the extent that any of that is mitigated, it's that it's not the only case study we do. So um, we will cover that material, but students don't have to use that as their case study for assignments and things like that. And are you required to give trigger warnings? What's the university position on this? Yeah, no, we haven't been formally instructed. Um, I believe some universities have been. Um, <clears throat> excuse me in my voice. <coughs> um, I believe some universities have been. Um, but we're, we're not, no. Not at, not at RMIT or Melbourne at this stage. And so, Rainbow, where do you sit on trigger warnings? What's your view about this now, having looked at this and read some of the research? I don't know. I mean, you might hear that I'm... It's different in the university setting when you're actually teaching and you need to use certain materials. I mean, that's what you're teaching. Mm -hmm. <laughs> How else do you do it? But in, in terms of media, I mean... I, I just wish that we hadn't got to a point where we have become so desensitised to what I think are often horrific images and stories that are there. People are, you know, it's the car crash that people rubberneck to have a look. People want want to see this stuff and um, I would <laughs> I would like it if there was a sort of reining in of that kind of material, but it's... It's a little bit Pollyanna, you know, wanting wanting things to be all sweet and and light again. And I was interested in what you were saying about all sorts of things can be triggering, including a colour or something like that. I was talking to someone the other day who was sexually abused in his teenage years and the person who did it often had consumed a large amount of red wine beforehand and just the smell or the concept of red wine for the rest of this person's life has been something that has triggered an incredible response, understandably, but it's not... Obvious to anyone outside, why? Why would red wine? Do that's this a very, to someone? and that's a very, as you can imagine, that is a very common experience, a very common trigger. Yes, and and this is just to sort of wrap up. It's also partly connected with a, a question which I hope we can deal with another time. That whenever we do segments that have any kind of emotional content, we always give out a number, a contact number, um, and whether or not that is something which we're almost desensitising people to, and sort of suggesting that every time we discuss even the most uh, um, delicate of matters, um, people are so um, fragile that they need to ring up a, a helpline. Do you have a quick view about that? I, I do have an opinion on that. I think that people should have those numbers. Everyone should have those numbers on their fridge, mm. you know, I mean, because that's the, giving the information and uh, so that so that people can reach out. And years and years ago, I was a volunteer at Lifeline. I can remember we would get a spike, you know, it would be a really, really busy night and often it would be linked to something that had been on television the night before. So... Um, well, I we should probably wrap this segment then by saying that the lifeline number is 131114, if anyone needs it. And I, I completely agree with you. I mean, I think that number should be available. Everyone should just have that on the fridge, on their phone, written on the back of their hand, whatever, um, because you never quite know when it might be relevant to you. Um, 
All right. Well, thank you for that, Rainbow. Uh, shortly, we'll be um, talking to Joe Ball from Switchboard. Um, they'll be up with us right after these messages. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. On the phone, we've now got Joe Ball from um, from Switchboard. Joe, are you there? I am. Thanks for having me this morning. Joe, thank you so much for your time. I'm going to throw straight to Prudence, who's going to <laughs> dive in and talk to us about Switchboard. Prudence, take it away. Uh, hi, thanks, Nick. Uh, hi, Joe. Um, thanks for joining us today. And I'm I'm sorry that you weren't able to be down at the Pride March. Um, you've got a no. bit of a bad cold by the sound of it. Yeah, I do. I've just, I, you know, it's, I think COVID's really changed how we... You know, we used to sort of a lot more sh- sort of soldier on, I guess, yeah. didn't we? But like we just, right. which we're we shouldn't all... have. Yeah, all... And so I'm playing the COVID safe and staying, well at, you know, staying absolutely away. <laughs> You're a fantastic role model. Thank you for doing that. So, um, what I wanted to catch up with you today really was on, um, you know, obviously there was some significant funding um, uh, announcements in the uh, state budget last week, and one area obviously that did get quite a lot of uh, note was um, significant funding for. LGBTIQA plus health and um, just for everyone's benefit lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, intersex, queer, um, asexual, agender, allies. How about that? Okay so that's what we're talking about today. Um, Now I guess the thing is really we know that those communities themselves experience significantly poorer health outcomes than everyone else. So Switchboard, in particular, obviously has received some funding and its and its Rainbow Door service. So I wonder, could you just give us a bit of background on Switchboard and and in particular, so what is Rainbow Door? Yeah, sure. Um, and I, I was interested in your trigger warning <laughs> conversation earlier, and I will give a bit of a trigger warning that during our conversation, I'll probably will talk about suicide and family violence. Um, and this, and you can call our service uh, if you're part of the LGBTIQA plus community or supporting somebody who is. Um, and, you know, we can include that at the end. But um, so what happens at Switchboard is we run two helplines. Um, we run a, we were part of the National LGBTI Service Helpline called QLife that runs every day from 3pm to midnight. And um, that's a service that's akin, I guess, to Lifeline for the Rainbow community, uh, single sessional support. You call up and you have a one-off conversation um, with a volunteer or a paid staff member, depending what time you call. Uh, and so we run that as the Victorian service. But the, in the most recent May budget that came out this week, we were funded for our recent and more intensive, we talk about it being more intensive, phone line, Rainbow Door. And um, that was started on the 28th of September last year. And that's a, a helpline that's for our community that provides not only um, a helpline but intake into service and short-term case management. Wow. Okay. So, and when you say sort of like you know intake, for example, what does that mean? What, what, what if somebody phones up Rainbow Door? Um, what, what's going to happen? Yeah. So we talk about the phone line as being for the prevention of family violence, suicide prevention, uh, mental health, and the relief of social isolation. So when you call up. Unlike a sort of lifeline experience, um, you can actually leave your phone number and, and, and have a conversation with someone about what further support you could get. And so if you're in a particular crisis or, or state of distress, 
uh, you can have that conversation straight up and then we can explore options with you about what other services are available to you. Take down your contact details, create a safety plan with you and call you back in the next sort of day or weeks uh, as required, which is what we talk about being that short-term case management, which is not a experience you, you... It's a more... In, it's a more wraparound service, if you like, than the other um, phone line, like Lifeline and QLife. And we've recognised that our community needs that because we have higher um, rates of family violence and suicide in our communities, we actually need a more intensive response um, that does connect people to services that, that, is, that is beyond the one-off conversation. So we might uh, refer people into... For example, counselling or maybe even a bed-based care, if the you know whatever the presenting issue is. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and as you said there, you know, sort of the, the sorts of issues that are being experienced by you know members of these or individuals in these communities. I mean, what, what's going on there? Do we understand why um, why LGBTIQA plus people have higher risks for or you know for some of these situations? Yeah. Look, I mean, I think it's really important. Um, to be clear about why we have those high risks and it's, you know, it is because of discrimination and systematic oppression and how people are treated. I mean, we have a far higher rate of chance of being homeless in our lives um, because of uh, rejection from families of origin, where, because of bullying and harassment at school, we're far likely to have poorer um, education outcomes and then therefore poorer education, uh, further uh, employment outcomes. So, you know, I think that that's the consequences of discrimination. That's why uh, you have to tackle that head-on as well as, you know, the other end, which is supporting people when they are distressed. Right. And, um, and, and it's a bit ongoing that you do provide that sort of, you know, continuity of some sort of service there. I'm, I'm also wondering as well, it's one of my favourite topics, but, you know, again, <clears throat> Melbourne, um, a great place perhaps to live and lots of services here. What about rural communities? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things we, we took on with the Rainbow Door and we're passionate about is seeing, looking at the statewide system of support. So when someone contacts our service and people contact us from throughout the state of Victoria, sometimes even from other states, although we're you know predominantly funded as a Victorian service, um, we have a conversation with the person about what kind of service they want and we look at uh, local-based services um, within mainstream, so we look at whether that service has been rainbow ticked, which is an accreditation system to see whether they're culturally competent around LGBTIQA plus communities. So we look at rainbow ticked regional communities, which I'm pleased to say that's ever increasing. Um, and then we look at uh, telehealth from the city to regional, which COVID has really created an amazing opportunity where there is actually telehealth to regional communities in a way that there wasn't previous to 2020. And, um, you know, and that might be a specialist service, uh, the LGBTI specialist service like Thorn Harbour or Queer Space, inter-regional communities. But then we might look at other indicators that the person wants. For example, if you're Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, you might want access to an Aboriginal community-controlled health service. Oh, so we really centre the person and, and what they need. That's not to sugarcoat the fact that there is a lack of services regionally, um, and we certainly deal with, you know, the complications of where a doorway into service, um, yeah. we're a gateway, we're a navigator, and we still need to do a lot more to, you know, create regional services that are that are good for everybody, um, and not just our LGBTIQA plus community, but everybody. And we know that the Mental Health Royal Commission that came out in February this year talked about the fact that there is a broken system, um, 
and you know, so we have a lot more to do sure. yeah, as a as services as a service sector. I know um, that Rainbow wants to ask you something. Yeah, Joe, I'm just wondering whether you get contact from young people, you know, under yes. 18s, or or whether you kind of linked up with Kids Line or one of those other services that's specifically for young people. No, we. I mean, all of our workers are, you know, approved to work with children. Um, we do talk to people very young, children, I would say, not just teenagers, but children. Um, we do get referrals from Kids Helpline into our service. We mm. also know that people have a mixed, our young people have a mixed response at those mainstream services like Kids Helpline, and, and we yeah. want to work to make those services better. But we, you know, we do hear that the experience young people have there is. Uh, is uneven, um, and we, we we absolutely talk to young people. We talk to a lot of parents as well who are supporting their young people, and that's a great conversation. Like when we, it's not just our community, but it's those who support our community. We talk to a lot of parents of transgender children, which is so welcome. I think that's so important that if you're a carer or a supporter of someone in our community, a parent of someone in our community, that it's a great thing to do to reach out and have that conversation about how you can support someone better um yeah so i think we do a lot of support for young people and we certainly talk to young people Joe, it's Dr. Nick here. Um, we were hearing from Bethany Haxall earlier from uh, the Gidget Foundation that the first port of call for people who want to utilise their services is to go to the GP and get a mental health plan, which sometimes I think is a bit of a barrier um, to accessing help. Um, is that something which people who contact your service are required to do, or can they bypass no. some of that more mainstream, which I think sometimes is going to be a, a significant barrier? No, it's a free service to call us and then we refer people, you know, we have that conversation with people about referral into free service. And we have what we call brokerage counselling, which is um, counselling, like money that we hold to pay um, for counselling into a particular service. So we absolutely recognise that we need to provide services beyond the, the 10 Medicare-provided services. And we know for trans and gender-diverse people, that people are often hesitant to have the conversations uh, with the same person, to talk about their mental health with the same person they might be talking to about their gender transition. People get worried about gatekeeping. Um, and so we find that a lot of the time trans and gender diverse people, you know, they want to have two different conversations. Uh, I don't think they necessarily have to, but there's definitely a perception that people want to have two different conversations. They might have used up their sessions on talking to people about their gender transition and then that, that sort of expired and they need to have a, a free conversation um, that we can provide about other issues that might be presenting for them. There's also another cohort of people we support who have no access to the 10 services. So we have people call us. We're connected to the interpreter service and we have asylum seekers and refugees in the community and in community detention who do call us. And they have no access to counselling and we, we, we prioritise them for that brokerage-free counselling. And we also uh, prioritise international students, another cohort of people who don't have that 10 free sessions and um, certainly need it. Wow. <clears throat> that's, that's good coverage there. I suppose just one really quick last question. So you've got quite a lot of funding. Um, uh, you know, what are you going to do with that money? Yeah, I mean, so it was $6.4 million over four years um, and it was... You know, the, the funding came through a recommendation in the Mental Health Royal Commission about the importance of the role we play. It is a fair bit amount of money, um, and but it isn't as well. But, um, <laughs> of course, it's never if quite you, enough. But... 
Yeah, and I think that one thing we're going to do is immediately address some of the like wait lists that we've got in our current service. Yeah. So at the moment, we people have to call up, and if it's a peak period on our phone line, they might have to leave a message. Um, and we always call them back and encourage people to leave a message. But we want to actually, you know, bypass that and actually speak yeah. to the person at the moment they call. And we call people back within, you know, a day or two days. But we really mm. want to, and we triage right. them. And if it's yeah, an emergency, it can make we a call difference, them back. can't it, Joe? Yeah, and I yeah. Think, so it's increasing the sort of speed of response and the capacity that your service and your doorway has. That's, I think we're going to, unfortunately, right. you're going to have to wrap up here. So I want to really thank you so much for sharing this information with us. And uh, and of course, there's a phone number, isn't there, for Rainbow Door? Do you want to give yeah, it to us? Me, yeah, let me. I do, I do. So again, if you're an LGBTIQA plus person or supporting someone who has, who is, and you are, you know, want to address family violence, suicide prevention, mental health, or any other presenting issue like alcohol and other drugs, you can call us on, we're open now from 10am to 5pm, seven days a week on 1800 729 367. You can also send a text message, which is good for people who might be struggling to have a phone conversation on 0480 017 246. And you can check those numbers on our website at www.rainbowdoor.com. Joe, thank you you very much indeed. Um, It's been terrific to talk to you. Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Therapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Therapy's Facebook page.